Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team. So, a little about our sponsors, Ericsson. As we're all aware, the oil and gas industry is digitizing rapidly. In addition to helping the industry reap the benefits of cost reductions, capture efficiencies for top-line revenue, achieve safety and environmental goals, digitization is enabling better and stronger connectivity. Ericsson provides best-in-class connectivity solutions for the oil and gas industry with its 4G and 5G private networks. Check out their site at www.ericsson.com forward slash oil and gas. I will put this in the notes of each one of the episodes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another Energy Workforce for Tomorrow podcast. I'm Neil Syme, the Shell Lead for IBM. With me is my co-host, Jerry Lewis. Jerry, how's it going, man? Hey, Neil, I'm doing really well. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Just living the dream as always, loving the life here in Texas. In Austin. In Austin. I'm in Austin. You're sitting in Houston right now. We it's have cold another. here today. It's, it's cold, cold here today. Man. Is it cold it's where cold. you are? Yeah. I can't. It's, it's freezing. I'm telling you People what, don't not- know. People don't know how cold it gets in Texas sometimes. I know. I, I tell people back home in Scotland and they do not understand. They do not. It's. I was like, why did I move here? I moved right. here for Seriously. the sun and I mean, the you, come, you came down here just in time for, well, I guess a couple of years, but you got Yuri right in the middle of your tenure totally. here, right? Totally, man. It was, that was uh, devastating. Totally. Totally. The snowmageddon was a bit of an eye opener. That was the <laughs> coldest I've ever been. I kid you not, it doesn't get that cold in Scotland. That was exactly. it's nuts. Anyway, we have a great guest with us today, and that's uh, John. John Rosenthal. Do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, absolutely. So first, thank you for inviting me to participate with you today. My name is John Rosenthal. I am the Texas State Representative for House District 135, which is an area on the northwest side of Houston, Texas. And it is a little chilly here today. When it reaches 40 degrees Fahrenheit, like it is right now in my, in my neck of the woods, we call those frigid temperatures. I'm a little bit of a unique quantity in the Texas state government. I'm the only mechanical engineer in the Texas state legislature. I'm the only oil and gas technical professional. I left my career, really. I was working as a subsea systems engineer for Cameron and then one subsea Schlumberger. A lot of your listeners will probably know those companies. And I ran for office in 2018. So I'm just at the beginning of my third term in the Texas state legislature. Yeah, John, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on. Yeah, I guess the Texas legislature what meets every other year for you know, some number of weeks. It's not a full-time thing. So you, do you still the, work? They say it's not a full-time thing. So I was the systems lead on some large subsea development projects. And folks in our industry will understand that's not a part-time undertaking. You're always on when you're working on global projects. And I kind of feel like it's similar in government. I'm also, I have this personality trait where if I'm going to engage in something, I feel like the only way for me to be successful is to put my whole self into it. So I have not worked as an engineer since I got elected. So I'm doing this full-time. It is true the legislature meets 
in odd numbered years in Texas for 140 days. So from the second week of January through the end of May, I believe, we're going to finish the last day of May. And in the interim, the year and a half in between sessions, there's stuff that we do preparing for, for the next session and then also serving the constituency of the district. And my area includes a lot of oil and gas industry. I live around the corner from companies like Weatherford, Oceaneering, where I used to work for many years myself, National Oil Well, which is now NOV. I worked for them when it was still called National Oil Well, and I had a full head of curly hair. Interestingly, John, that's the account that I lead for IBM, is National Oil Well Varco, or NOV, as it's now known. NOV, yeah. So it'd be cool to cross-reference some connections there at some point. Yeah, Always on, Jerry, aren't you? Always on. I know, right? (laughs) But does that mean, John, that when you say you're, when you're not in the legislature doing your legislating, are you writing, are you trying to author legislation? Are you serving on committees? And- in terms of serving your constituents and the businesses in your neighborhood, are you going to meet with them to see what they need and what they want? Like, is that physically what you're doing? Yeah. So, and kind of a little of all the above, typically the substantive committees in the Texas House and even the select committees, which are temporary, we have interim charges. So there's some work that occurs during the interim as far as the actual government stuff. And then the part in the district you know, folks ask me, do you live in Washington? Do you live in Austin? I live in Houston, Texas, around the corner from Oceaneering. And I am part of this community. And so there's lots of community engagement. Like I go to all the school board meetings. I'm a member of the Chamber of Commerce out here. And I literally will do anything that I'm allowed to do that's legal to help my constituents in there with their families, with their businesses. I'm big on promoting our local businesses in the area. I'm trying to eat my way through the district at all the privately owned little restaurants. I have great diversity out here. There's free meals, John. Huh? You get free meals. Is that how it works? I do not get free meals. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you could maybe put in a good word. That's it. But there are restaurant owners all over this part of Harris County that do know me for sure. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. And so as you look back in terms of what you've done in the past and how that's impacting your career or influencing your career, how have you seen that what all of your previous experience as an engineer has followed in and been able to make you successful within the House of Representatives? Well, Neil seems to be freezing a little bit, but I feel like the question is how my work experience informs what I do now. Yeah, I think that, that is- was a good distillation of that, uh, of that yeah. one. And so first, while I suppose all... I have to admit to being a politician, while all politicians are partisan in some form or another, I'm not known as some kind of fierce partisan. I really aim to be the voice of reason. And while I flail wildly at that, clearly failing miserably, I have developed a reputation as being knowledgeable on the issues where I choose to speak, and I also choose my spots to speak. So I think one of the things that makes me unlike some politicians is I'm unwilling to speak about things I haven't actually studied. Yeah. So what's an example, John, of where, you know, you were in a session and something came up that would impact your constituents and let's for our benefit of our listeners, let's say the oil and gas industry or the service industry around it, where you're like, Hey, listen, this is the reality and what we need to consider is X, Y, and Z. Can you give us an example of something like well, that any, where your credibility that lives in this state? lived 
in anyone who was here the last couple of years lived through a massive ice storm in 2021. And that occurred during the beginning of the legislative session. We actually had like two weeks out because people were frozen in their homes. And so when we came back, there were legislative priority items to try to put some measures in place so that if we had a severe weather event like that, it wouldn't impact the people of Texas as severely as having a complete cascade failure of your electrical power infrastructure. And of course, a large piece of that in this state is the majority, I think it's around a little over 60% of our electrical generation in the state of Texas is thermal generation by burning natural gas. And so the natural gas piece all the way from the wellhead, you know, the supply and the moving it, the midstream piece through, you know, pipelines and whatever to electrical generation was all topic of conversation. And what happens in the legislature is people from the industry, experts, lobbyists come in, testifying committees, talk to us. I am the subject matter expert in the House. And so while folks in the past, before I arrived, could say anything they wanted to, and there's no one to fact check them in real time, now there's somebody to fact check them in real time. So when a lobbyist walks into a committee I'm sitting in and says, natural gas doesn't freeze at earthly temperatures, I can say, well, it does if there's a tiny little bit of water in it. I have a whole career built around stopping hydrates from forming in subsea pipes. So don't tell me natural gas. And that's at 40 degrees on the ocean floor, right? So that's an instance where I'm trying to help push policy in a realistic direction. And we know that our industry in general, they want to be good stewards. They're good neighbors. They're good community participants, especially the major operators. And so we're not looking to stop them from making a profit. We want them to operate responsibly, or at least I do. And I think my constituents do. So how much do you actually interact with some of the large companies when making some of these policies? Do you take advice from some of these guys or you try to completely separate? So it's interesting because what they do is there's a couple of different ways that the operators of large companies can communicate with us in the legislature. The most common thing is for them to actually hire like lobbyists. So there are professionals that come in and a lot of times lobbyists came up through the industry, have some subject matter expertise, and that's that's all well and good. I prefer to speak to the technical professionals because we talk the same language. But you have instances of both. So while I'm I can't say that I'm buddies with any CEOs of large corporations. I have relationships with both like the government affairs policy folks and also my former colleagues who are around, you know, our world is small. Yeah, totally. And we swim around through these different agencies. But every time I would go to a corporate meeting at Exxon or ConocoPhillips or as working either at Oceaneering or at National Oil Well or, or even at Cameron, where I was for quite a few years, you know, you see the same people in these rooms and we just we swim around performing different roles in different places. That makes sense. So can you give us some examples, John, there what's recently been happening in the policy world around energy, you know, oil and gas or any part of the energy? I know we talked about the cold and how you were addressing some of that and our reaction to it, but was there anything else just as an industry-wide type policies, maybe to encourage the industry to grow or 
restricts some of the way it's moving and how it's heading? What's recently been the wave? Well, it's, it's really an excellent question. It makes me wonder if you're actually following us in the Texas Ledge. <laughs> I do a little bit. Of, I do a little bit of research. You know, I'm not a complete. This is going to be a topic, and what you have is regarding the energy industry in Texas in general. You have a push and pull going on. So while most folks recognize that there's a global shift in energy production and energy consumption on this planet, there are some folks in Texas naturally who resist that and want to keep everything hydrocarbon based. So they all want, want to be oil and gas. I think. The folks who are a little more deliberate and studious recognize that as the population of the state grows, and this state is population is growing dramatically fast. In the last census, we got two new seats in Congress when the most that any other state got was one, and that's because of the dramatic population growth. Well, with that, you've got energy needs. You've got all the new cars, you've got all the houses, all the businesses. And so I'm of the opinion, as many are, that we should have a portfolio of energy resource. And that includes, you know, both renewables, oil and gas. You know, we, we want to be responsible, but we also have to serve the needs of our constituents. And not to mention the huge piece of the Texas economy that oil and gas is. There's no way to get around that. 100%. So there's a push and pull around hardening our energy infrastructure still. The lieutenant governor has made it one of his... Two of his priority items are energy grid and toughening our natural gas production facilities. So that's going to be a thing. There's an incentive program for giving property taxes or even abating them completely to encourage corporations to move into the state and set up shop and, you know, bring their work here. And a lot of that goes to oil and gas or oil and gas related industries. And that has just expired in the last session. And so there's going to be an effort to renew some sort of incentive program for that. And some folks think it should be across the board. Like I personally think it should be not just any kind of energy, but any major industry that wants to move in to this state. It's a great place to do business. Some people, you know, it's interesting to me that the Texas Farm Bureau believes we should only give this abatement to oil and gas companies. And it kind of blows my mind because I'm like, why, why do you all even care? How come we're not giving it yeah. to farmers and ranchers who want to come here? <laughs> yeah. Especially if it's the Farm Bureau lobbying. So that's just kind of an example of strange bedfellows that you mm. sometimes see. Maybe they own a lot of land and that land gets leased and the lessors are, you know, who knows? And I know if we're talking in terms of energy infrastructure now, like we were speaking before we went on online about electric vehicles and the electric network here, there's going to be some conversation about a surcharge on buying electric vehicles in this state. There's going to be conversation around having a surcharge on the purchase of electric vehicles because they don't consume oil and gas. And a big piece of state revenue comes from oil and gas, what we call severance taxes, which is the tax applied when you move the product from one place to another. I find that interesting. And of course, for me, I'm a big advocate of public education, and we'll probably talk a little bit about that too. A big part of our public education in Texas is paid for by oil and gas severance taxes. So while our property taxes are the largest piece, the full day pre-K 
that I worked so hard to have installed in this state is paid for directly by oil and gas severance taxes. So it's a complicated and intricate web that we're going to be working in. Yeah. If you think about penalties, I guess that's another way of saying surcharge for buying an electric vehicle. I would assume that the surcharge would go to fund infrastructure to pay for the charging, but apparently it's more just punitive because you're not contributing, but it will fly in the face of federal incentives to purchase EVs that are in place yeah. at the same time. It's interesting how people are going to navigate that. And plus the federal incentives, you know, not just to purchase the EVs, but to develop those industries and infrastructure in our state. Mm -hmm. A half a million charge points, I think, is the goal that the current administration has. So, you know, it's the, sorry, Neil, I know you had an add on here, but just get this one in. Is there anything that you see, John, that's happening around expanding and or you know being part of that half a million charge point infrastructure and leading in that way or not so it's a good question i wish i had more personal knowledge about it so it's not that it doesn't exist it's that i honestly don't know maybe disappointing but throughout my career as an engineer and now a politician i'm willing to say i don't know if i don't actually know no, that's fair if you were to sit back and think about your own priorities for the year for Texas, for your constituents, for you know what you think is best. Is that something you would think about advocating for or where does it fall on your priority list? Well, in terms of that specific piece of infrastructure, that's a good question. And while I do think as electrical vehicles become a larger part of how we get around, it's going to be a necessity. So kind of the same way that we're looking at trying to expand broadband in this state. The state is probably the most abundant resource in this state is land. It's a monstrously huge land mass. It's like if you lay the map of Texas on top of Europe, it covers like the whole EU pretty much. And so it's going to be a challenge just like broadband is. And while we're expanding infrastructure and modernizing our state, that probably needs to be part of the picture. I saw in the news last night that there's something like 10% of all vehicles sold are now electric. Now, I think it's 1% of personal vehicles or something is electric, but it's coming. I was in California a couple of months ago, and the difference between the amount over there versus the amount over in Texas is huge. But it feels like if we don't get on the front foot, potentially, and start encouraging it, then we might be left behind, similar to your broadband discussion. So... Yeah, I, I completely know. agree. And it's not the sort of, none of these things are the sort of thing that just sort of magically appear. So you need to get the processes and, and the funding mechanisms and the organizations in place. And we probably, we probably should have a government organized effort so that it can be statewide and coordinated. I wouldn't consider them competing either. If I look at, so my, my company Shell, they have a huge renewable energy sources push at the moment and trying to build a number of different assets around the world. They're going to be the ones that control those renewable energy sources and start to build upon them. And they're also looking at different, you know, things like batteries and so forth. So going forward, I suppose it would make sense to have that push to encourage perhaps electrical vehicles in tandem with encouraging further industry and bringing new people into the industry, et cetera. Because that's sometimes, we've talked about it, Jerry, quite a lot in this podcast, right? About how do we encourage people to get yeah. into the industry? And part yeah. of that is making it happen. So, yeah. you know, yeah. is there anything happening in the uh, house, John, around 
the people and the number of people, the different types of people, the different skills in the industry into this, into the energy industry? So there is. And actually, that's a very good question, because, again, this is something with multiple layers that's approached from different directions. And so I actually am one of a large group of folks that advocate for public education and really having robust funding for public education and preparing students for to enter the workforce and whether students coming out of the K through 12 system choose to go into higher education and pursue things like engineering degrees or other disciplines also we want we need skilled labor and craftsmen in our trades and anyone who works in our industry knows engineers can't be successful if no one is building the stuff <laughs> it's got you know it's got to be built tested installed commission you know and i have done all those roles in the past so we also want to encourage workforce development programs both coming out of the public education the k through 12 system have the work study programs and preparing them you know some students in this state some areas are really starting to tread down that path and have high school graduates coming out with either associate degrees or certifications. Some of them, you know, have opportunities to start at welding school and stuff like that, but also for training or retraining our existing workforce. And we do have programs in Texas that have been wildly successful. There's one that I particularly advocate for called the Texas Innovative ACES, and ACES is adult career education. And recently, we've just expanded this for military veterans groups to participate. So if you are a tank commander, maybe those skills are very valuable, but don't translate directly to our job market. We'd love for them to get training in computer programming or welding or, you know, some of these things that even the construction trades, you know, we talk about the shells of our industry in the area where I live and work. Workforce development is currently a challenge and it's hard to find labor, especially skilled labor. And to attract them, they have to have, you know, reasonably affordable housing and good schools so that they'll come live here. And, you know, if you're, if you're short on housing and it's horribly expensive and you can't afford to live near where you work, then that creates a problem in your workforce development. So all these things are going to be moving through the Texas House. We've got thousands of bills have already been filed. The deadline to get into draft, I think, is next Friday in order to be considered for this session. And so about half of the bills that I've put into the Legislative Council to be drafted have already come back. So there's going to be thousands more filed, and I expect to see a lot of stuff around workforce development, both public education and and in our existing workforce. John, I think that's fantastic. We hear so much about folks not having the right skills anymore to be relevant because manufacturing has been outsourced or you know sent overseas or you know, the economy's changed, you've got automation. But with the right retraining, access to it, publication of it, it seems like we could address that, especially if industry was involved. So can you comment on whether or not or how industry, like the industry, the companies that are part of the industry are involved with that, know about it, participate in it, recruit from it, support it? Can you comment on that connection, if there is one? I can some. So I don't know that they're interacting with the government directly on that, but I have experience working with companies like 
BP, which folks around here don't even recognize that that stands for British Petroleum. Yeah. They think it's a Texas company because there's a massive headquarters not far from where I live. But BP, Exxon, Shell, ConocoPhillips, just to name a few right off the top of my head, as well as some of the service industries like Cameron, Schlumberger, Weatherford, have these wonderful investment programs where they do they invest in our schools. They do, what is it called? Where the kids actually go and intern. So they'll have internship programs, both for high school. And like an apprenticeship or something. Yeah, apprenticeship, internship programs, work study programs. And so it helps to generate interest, especially for our school kids as they're starting to approach the age where they have to decide what they want to do. And a lot of them don't have any idea about the myriad of different roles and professions that you could follow in our energy industry, sort of writ large, sort of globally. And it gets them interested, especially when we can bring them into the work environment. And so they get a little taste. Actually, it might sound boring, you know, to be an engineer, but actually it can be quite fast paced and we get to deal with cutting edge technology many times. And so it's great to see Students light up. I mean, when I was at Oceaneering, we also did things like we sponsored robotics programs in some of these schools. So kids could get into STEM subject matter. That was fun and exciting for them. So I, I see our industry participating a lot, especially with the, the colleges and high schools. So what would you potentially like to see going forward, John? I mean, this podcast is politically unaffiliated. We are agnostic. I couldn't be more agnostic because I can't vote. But where would you like to see things move, right? It sounds like there's already a lot in play with thousands of potential bills out there. So where else can government potentially play a role, do you think? So I think, especially with the federal programs that are being enacted right now, and folks can have their opinions about good, bad, or indifferent towards these things. A lot of money is being spent on developing aspects of the energy industry. And while the push is on renewable and green energy, there's also stuff directly tied to what the hydrocarbon folks do, the carbon capture, carbon capture utilization storage stuff, where we're monetizing and making use of assets that were played out, you know, subterranean formations that are not productive anymore can be used for storing something which may be a valuable commodity in the future. And so I would, for me, the advocacy is to try to remove the resistance to the, removing resistance to the all of the above approach. So while we're going to need to develop our overall energy portfolio in the state, we need to not be resistant to growing any part in preference to any other part. And so participating in the federal programs means bringing potentially billions of dollars into this state to develop industry, infrastructure, and workforce. And I think it would be irresponsible to ignore that and not try to do our best to take advantage of it. So so quickly, just this is, so from, I'm an insight, I'm an outside in type of view here, guy of American politics. So based on what you've just said, what's that, what's the likelihood do you think that'll happen? It does seem there's a little bit of political divisiveness goes on in the US. I don't know if you guys noticed, but it seems to be there. And so what's the likelihood that we'll get positive change in the next couple of, well, days, weeks, sounds like, to something, but also years and so forth. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say about that is most of us have a view of politics from what we see on the news 
And from what happens in Washington, D.C., where it's insanely partisan to the point where they cannot get anything at all done, I feel. And so while I'm critical of Washington, I would like the folks in Texas to feel really good about your state government. And while there's certainly areas where people are going to very vociferously disagree with some of the things this state government enacts as a whole, the way that we operate is not so fiercely partisan. And there are plenty, like, I feel like my colleagues and I are most... There's exceptions to everything, but my colleagues and I are mostly there to serve the people of the state and try to move us forward and do what we can to help the state grow and flourish. Now, I think it would be helpful for folks to understand that of the thousands of bills that we're going to pass this session, my in my last session, which was seen as hugely partisan and contentious, 87, something like 86 point something percent of the bills that went through the Texas House of Representatives got more than 100 out of 150 votes, which means broad bipartisan support for the vast majority of things that we do. And so while there are certain wedge issues that everyone's going to get heated and disagree about when it comes to moving the state forward in terms of our jobs and energy infrastructure and all that stuff, your government, we consider each other our colleagues, we're friends and some of the best relationships I've made have been across the aisle with members, you know, you know, of the red team, blue team divide. <laughs> some of these issues don't fall that way. And so we really do try to work together and I would expect to see progress, but by the very nature of things and requiring compromise and then, you know, to be fair, the oil and gas industry has large influence in the Texas state government. You know, they spend a one of the things, John, I've noticed, and I've managed BP before NOV. So when you said BP, I felt a little kindred spirit there. <laughs> a lot of folks have left the oil and gas industry proper and gone into PPPs, like public-private partnerships and municipal partnerships, like the Greater Houston Partnership. There's a bunch of partnerships that are sort of, how do we make the you know, the energy capital of the world or the United States at least, you know, have this transition element to it. And can you comment a bit on how does the state government work with the municipal governments and those PPPs and other groups that are trying to advocate certain things? Are you friendly? Do you guys talk? How does that work? The members, you know, the other representatives in large part do work very well with our municipal governments. Unfortunately, this in this state, there is quite a partisan divide because the leadership of the state is conservative, red team. And the leadership in the major metropolitan areas in this state, largely blue team. And so it's kind of unfortunate that you end up with an adversarial relationship in many aspects. Folks that live in Texas will see it in the news you know, all the time, elections being challenged, stuff, contentious relationships between some of our county judges and some of our statewide elected officials really make it difficult for them to work in tandem in many areas. But by the same token, we are all trying to do the best for our constituents in our state. And so... The powers that be, the leadership of the state cannot ignore the industrial base in Houston. You know, we're 
a monstrously huge part of the economy of the state. And we have the Port of Houston, which we haven't even talked about, but that is one of the lifelines for the whole country. You know, we have our port in the Port of Houston moves more product by bulk than any port, I think, in the whole world, certainly in the United States. So they're kind of in a situation where they're adversarial in some ways, but they have to work together for the success of everybody. And unfortunately or fortunately, however you look at it, a lot of these folks, as they move up in the political circles, it's very important to them to be able to get reelected. And if they don't move us forward economically and in other areas, then they won't get reelected. So they kind of are forced to work together. It's an uneasy relationship, but we do manage to do some good. So there's no red team, blue team versus blue team, like American football games every now and again, where you duke it out <laughs> and all that type of thing. That's that's kind of what I was hoping for. What's the scandal? You've got any scoop? Well, we want an exclusive here, John. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm. while some of that stuff certainly goes on, that's just not my bag. You know? uh, good to hear. I'm glad to hear. The voice of reason, John. The voice of reason. I don't engage in partisan divide stuff. I'm somebody that seeks common ground because I do think even though we have to compromise to get things done, if it's going to happen across the aisle, I think that's the best policy, best method. And actually, I'm just going to boast that the two bills that I passed into law in the last session, I got unanimous votes on the House floor and in the Texas State Senate. Quite a bit of work to do that because some folks will vote against your stuff just because they don't like the color of the tie you wore that day. So it's an exercise. But when you get everybody to agree, you have to believe you're forwarding policy. It's good for the people of Texas. So Totally. That's the way to success. And also, we were talking earlier just before the show, and you're 3-0 and as well, John. Jeez. I'm 3-0. That's right. Three, so as three wins. As a complete novice, here's a fun fact. As a complete novice, never ran for office before in my life, unless you count my effort to become the president of my high school science club in 1980, oh, uh, which I was funny. successful at. So if you count that, I'm poor <laughs> now. In, in 2018, I ran a, a volunteer-driven grassroots campaign, completely underfunded, and I defeated a guy who had been in the government for 24 years. All right. You're inspiring me here, John. I think yeah. I maybe I mean Jack had too. I've got so I would love to have okay, I would love to have a few more engineers in the state legislature. Remember, I'm the only mechanical engineer and the only oil and gas professional in the state legislature. I'd like a few, but those who work in engineering will understand when I say hopefully not too many, just a few. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So we're probably getting to the time, you know, where we got to wrap up next, maybe just one or two more questions just in terms of time. But what advice, John, would you have for the energy industry, the oil and gas industry, energy industry? What would you like to see the industry do, move towards or change, adjust in order to kind of achieve what you believe are the most important goals and objectives that you know, we need here in Texas and maybe in the U.S. And, and globally? It's an excellent question. And I'm glad you asked this because I preach about this all the time. You know, I'm, a lot of folks think I'm a liberal. I'm as socially liberal as you can get, but I am an engineer by trade and an industry professional. And I've worked in manufacturing and industry all of my adult life. And so I believe if we're going to move the state forward, 
If we want to, I think it's a point of pride for Texans. We're the energy capital of the United States. A lot of folks think that we are the energy capital of the world. I know there are some people who may want to argue that, but there's no question that we're a major player in the energy picture, in the global energy market, global energy picture. If we want to stay relevant and stay competitive, we need our constituent industries to help to drive that. And in the face of a shifting global environment, I feel like it has to be industry doing it to stay profitable, to stay relevant, and to stay on the leading edge. It's not something the government can force, but I would hope that the government can encourage industry to make these new investments. And we do not want to fall behind our neighbors. So with apologies to the folks in Oklahoma, Louisiana, you know, who also are prideful about their energy industry, infrastructure, and and workforce. I would like to see the people of Texas encourage your legislators. Find out who represents you. You can go to Google in Texas and type who represents me and you'll get a whole you'll you'll get a whole list of who your senators and congressional representatives, state representatives It's our job to be accessible to you in the Texas state government. And if you call my office, especially if you're calling from the district, I will always make appointments to meet with you, call you, talk to you, but express yourselves and let folks know the future of our, it has to be on all fronts, the future of our public education so that we've got an educated workforce, you know, and folks coming out of school ready to enter trades. It's got to be in smart investments in our infrastructure and in our industrial base. And I believe in encouraging industry to invest. And so no matter what it is that you want to advocate for, I'm going to encourage you to find out who represents you and just call them. Let us know because we do hear you. And we've even got systems in the office where I train my office staff to put this stuff on spreadsheets, but we keep track of how many people call and what the topics are and all of that. And so you really can have influence. If a lot of people are calling these offices, your elected representatives will take notice of that. Yeah, that's a good reminder of how our democracy works or how it's supposed to work anyway. Should work, should work. Right, Right. how it's supposed to work. I've always believed, or at least in the last 10, 15, 20 years, as I've, in my career, agility, enterprise agility and like, small kind of mission-driven teams have proven to be super effective. And what I see in our government that works well is the small units, the municipalities, the state governments, they're the ones that actually do the innovative work and do the work that makes change happen. And that's a little bit like agile, right? We don't have this like overarching plan for the country that accommodates everybody. Rather, we, we kind of start more grassroots. So to the point you make about you know, folks who care about things calling their representative who in turn then pass legislation, you know, that impacts their local area or their district or their state, you know, I think that's a great way to get things done and relevant for us too, right? We're not passing legislation that's appropriate for North Dakota, doing it for (laughs) for Texas and for our district down the street. Neil, any closing thoughts? No, I think that's great. I think we should probably let John go and actually, you know, he's got another thousand bills to crank out by Tuesday. Surely, <laughs> come on, John. Get to I can't imagine. Work, I can't imagine. We have a couple dozen that are still in draft. Hopefully, we'll get them filed. Oh, wow. Yeah, there I you can. go. Well, thanks for taking all the time to join us here, John. That was fascinating. I'll be honest, especially for me, new to this, right? It's certainly new to this political system, et cetera. I found it just 
fascinating to see how it all works. I'm also a little bit relieved in terms of the things you're saying that we don't should yeah. believe everything we hear on the vastly partisan news channels that we get shoved down our throat here, which is also a massive curiosity for me when I came across here and oh, lived yeah. here for a while. It just yeah. doesn't happen quite as vastly different yeah. in the yeah, UK. Ju- ju- so yeah. that's a biggie. Yeah, actually, if folks want the real news, I would encourage them to tune into BBC. I do. I oh, still right. do it. I've got BBC World yeah. on now and again just to see what that's like, what's actually happening as opposed to <laughs> still I yeah. shouldn't put my biases out there either. So <laughs> yeah. go Fox News, go CNN, go wherever you yeah. want. Well, well, I'm certainly appreciative, John, of you joining us here and, and bringing your industry experience and that relevance into the legislature to make sure that there's a little common sense grounding you know, some of the legislation and bills and things that we're doing. I think it's really important, and I wish we had more practical experience, you know, underlaying all of our legislative folks who are here, helping here. make laws. So yeah. good for you. And thank, thank you. So you. Thanks, Thanks for your service to us. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Cheers, John. Have a good one. Cheers, John. Cheers. Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Oh,